0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and our website, BIV.com. I'm Kirk LePoint.
1: I'm Haley Wooden. Later on in the show, we get a glimpse at what we otherwise wouldn't necessarily know, the state of M&A activity strictly involving private Canadian companies. But first, Canada is now one step closer to legalizing recreational cannabis. We'll talk about that next There was some hearty competition for Canadians' attention on Thursday evening. We had a historic Stanley Cup, the Ontario election. That was historic, too. It was. Yeah. And the Canadian Senate passing Canada's Cannabis Act which brings us one step closer to becoming the first developed country in the world to legalize recreational marijuana. The version that was passed comes with more than 40 amendments it will now head back to the House of Commons next week for another vote. Deepak Anand joins us now as he regularly does to comment on the latest cannabis news. He's vice president of government relations at Cannabis Compliance and joins us on the line today from Toronto. Deepak good to have you back on the show with us.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Did uh, did the Senate steer the bill through without too many rough patches here?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, so we certainly saw the Senate committees come back with a number of uh, findings and, and modifications that they requested to make to the Act. But um, at the end with the vote, it was uh, went through quite, quite smooth sailing and there was not a lot of things that came up that we kind of almost expected a few curveballs to be thrown, but there was nothing significant that came out of that. Uh, but the Senate has proposed uh, a fair amount of amendments, and, and those, we'll see if those amendments actually get carried in the House or, or they get voted down at this point.
1: Yeah, what's your sense about what will happen? Because some of them are fairly small, but there are bigger amendments that could potentially prove to be sticking points. What's your take?
2: Uh, absolutely. So uh, there are some uh, very serious uh, amendments that the government's proposed, and so one on packaging and branding in particular is, uh, is an interesting one where they're not allowing any promotion or any swag of cannabis to be distributed. So uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, the home grow one is a little bit more political where we've seen Quebec and Manitoba say they don't want to be part of the, the home grow and not allow Canadians to grow in those provinces. I think that's one probably you're going to see the federal government push back on. Uh, and, the, and the most significant one probably is the disclosure requirements where the Senate is saying Anybody that has a license producer facility, uh, the government needs to do a disclosure, uh, whether it be shareholders, whether it be key investors, uh, whether that be people behind the operation. So uh, I think that's going to be probably one that the, the industry is going to want to push back on a little bit. And we're going to see if the liberals in the House actually endorse that. But there's some significant changes to this bill being proposed by the Senate here.
0: In your view, Deepak, uh, how much... Of the Senate's activities here, how much? How many of the amendments uh, come down to say prudent industrial policy versus um, ideological aims?
2: Uh, yeah, so you know, there's certainly uh, you know a few good amendments that have been proposed by the Senate. I think there's been over. Uh, Just over 70 amendments in total, Uh, but a lot of them are uh, really, you know, talking about, uh, you know, some of the things that uh, have come out of cannabis in general, where there's been stigma around it. And we've seen senators bring some of that stigma in uh, without really, you know, looking or understanding at the the key facts uh, and what's happening. I mean, the, the government task force did a really good job traveling across the country talking to Canadian stakeholders, people in the industry, and presented their, their, their sort of report. Whereas the Senate has, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of individuals that aren't necessarily connected with the industry as closely, trying to form policy and shape policy and opinions on this, which I think is a bit challenging here.
1: There were, of course, a number of amendments that were not approved, were rejected by the Senate. Any surprises there?
2: Uh, Not a whole bunch. I mean, we certainly saw the conservative government uh, and the senators go and make some very aggressive uh, comments and proposals. And not surprisingly, a lot of it got voted down, uh, given that they just didn't make practical sense. Uh, You know, I know that uh, a couple of the senators actually went and met Jeff Sessions, who's the attorney general in the U.S., uh, to talk about cannabis policy. And I think that was probably... Uh, one of the most surprising moves because Jeff Sessions has been completely anti-cannabis and uh, you know they were trying to bring in some of those opinions that that clearly haven't worked in the U.S. uh, and they aren't going to work here so nothing really surprising in terms of the ones that are voted down uh, but certainly some of the amendments are going to have long-lasting implications and and we'll be interested to see what happens in the House.
0: In your view in taking a look at the the total package now as it stands until it goes back to the House uh, would you say that we're 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 doing a good version 1.0 here of um, of how to introduce a product like this into the marketplace legally.
2: Uh, I think so. I think that uh, this has been a very cautious approach that the Liberal government has set 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 forth on. We've known from the outset that it was going to be a very controlled uh, legalization that they were going to implement, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, That's the opinion that our government has gotten from states that have legalized, like Colorado and Washington State and Oregon that have been through some challenges by really opening up the floodgates, so, so as to say. Uh, and our government said, no, we're going to take a little bit more of a cautious approach while balancing key objectives of legalization and why we're legalizing cannabis. So I think it's, it's probably the good 1.4 approach. I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see some of these amendments. Uh, and we're hoping that Liberal government does push back on uh, some of these amendments in the House. Uh, but but overall, I think this is a good 1.0 uh, in terms of legalizing cannabis for the first time in Canada for non-medical purposes.
1: If we're still looking toward a by the end of July timeline, what's the sort of timeline or deadline pressure the House is going to face over the next few weeks if it does want this bill passed?
2: Yeah, so I don't think that we're going to see actually an end of July timeline. I think we're going to probably look at a September or October timeline, given where this needs to be uh, and the reason for that is uh, the provinces have asked the federal government for some more time on this and uh, the health minister of that testified before the senate committee and she said uh, that you know they, they look, they're going to look at a delayed sort of launch of legalization so uh, in my opinion I think we're probably going to see the bill get royal assent uh, once back and forth is over between the house and the senate in the next couple of weeks uh, and following that we know there's going to be an eight to ten week cooling off period from the time that the legislation becomes law and and the time that the law is actually effective. Um, So just doing some quick calculations based on when they can introduce things, uh, given the Senate procedures, given parliamentary procedures, uh, launching things in the Gazette. Uh, I I did the math and and I came up with a a September-ish timeline. Yeah. Uh, where we would see legalization uh, sort of unfold
0: yeah because I, th- I think a lot of people don't recognize that uh, once once you actually get royal assent it's not like the uh, the law kicks in the next morning you usually have to post and have comments on um, a yeah. lot of the regulations and uh, and that can take quite a long time to get gazetted um, in you know in, in Canada is is the ground also going to shift now given that uh, where you are today is uh, under new provincial leadership. Um, Do the Conservatives have a a different game plan for cannabis there than the Liberals did?
2: Yeah. So it's certainly going to be interesting. Uh, You know, I was watching the Senate vote last night, but I was also very closely watching the Toronto election and the Ontario election. So, uh, uh, you know, it's been interesting to see uh, the Ford government, you know, we're going to see what they uh, come out with. I mean, at the outset, uh, they very clearly said that they were going to look at a private public mix model, Uh, I I certainly think that that's one that's probably going to be most successful. This 40-store concept that the Wynn government came out with has always been one that was was flawed significantly, in my opinion. Um, Because just, you know, you're going to need at least 200 to 250 stores in Ontario alone uh, at the outset to be able to cater to the demand. Uh, If you've looked at U.S. states that have legalized cannabis, you know, they've been out of stock and and the demand has just been so significant. Um, So I think Ontario is going to see a a shift in this. I think we will see a a private-public mix model. I certainly hope for that uh, because I don't think the Ontario cannabis stores alone are going to meet a lot of the needs for legalization. Having said that, uh, you know, I think on the Ontario cannabis stores or the LCBO is a significant sized company and, and, and a monopoly almost if you will and there's certainly a lot of advantages of having things controlled by them particularly distribution uh but i think that that the sale uh, it should be on a private public mix model
1: mm-hmm. you mentioned that the provinces have been asking for more time to figure out their own regulations around this what would you say is the range of readiness among provinces and where does bc fit into that
2: uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting one. So we know Premier Notley has come out and said, we're ready, you know, for whenever the federal government legalization. And to their credit, uh, I think Alberta's done a fairly good job of, uh, uh, of getting ready and getting prepared for this. The other province that I think has been most prepared is New Brunswick. Uh, they came out very early. I mean, you know, when, even when the licensed producers started uh, growing cannabis for medical purposes, they said, we want to try and support the cannabis industry. We want to make sure we're invested dollars into it. So... They took the whole file and essentially gave it to uh, the economic development uh, ministry within New Brunswick. And they've done a phenomenal job getting prepared for legalization. So I think uh, New Brunswick and Alberta are certainly ready. Uh, I think the province that's probably the least ready is BC, uh, given that we've had an NDP government that that came in a little bit late. Uh, They haven't really talked about a lot of the policies in terms of distribution uh, that they will allow. They've certainly downloaded a lot of stuff to the municipalities, which... Uh, they're, you know, now the municipalities are having a hard time grappling. Um, so I think that uh, that some of the provinces like BC and and others are are less prepared than uh, than Alberta and New Brunswick. But overall, uh, most most provinces are moving very quickly uh, in a direction forward to be prepared for this once it does come down.
0: So uh, well, we can expect the legislation now to get through the House of Commons, there's no question that it's going to be uh, going to be going through uh, in whatever shape or form. But do you already have in your own mind and do the companies in this sector have in mind uh, an immediate uh, point of, uh, <laughs> of lobbying and, and uh, thrust in order to try to get uh, a change made that you see as pretty essential in, in terms of a do over?
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, so, uh, you know, to their credit, I think the federal government has been very supportive and inclusive uh, of companies that have been in the space. There's been a lot of consultation. There's been a lot of stakeholder dialogue. Uh, and so the government, uh, you know, certainly open Health Canada has been, been doing a lot of extensive consultations with industry. So uh, there's a good partnership there and, and they know what some of our needs as an industry and some of the challenges are. Uh, and and they, some of them actually directly affect the, the government's objectives of legalization. So uh, it, it's a very close partnership, but uh, we will certainly be lobbying for things that we see that need to be changed, uh, particularly some of the Senate amendments. And, uh, and the government is open to that dialogue. Mm.
0: Is there one that's, that stands out, a couple that stand out?
2: Uh, absolutely. I mean, so the whole ability that the Senate is proposing to give uh, new forms of products, uh, to, they want to retain control. So, in other words, what they're saying is we know in day one of legalization, uh, the only products that will be legal are going to be fresh cannabis, dried cannabis and cannabis oils. Well, if you look, uh, Kirk and Haley, at the, at the U.S. market, um, edibles and different forms of, of cannabis consumption or, and products are a leading dried cannabis and cannabis oil. So yeah. one of the things that we've been pushing as an industry has been, uh, to allow us to, to, to have those different forms. And, and the, and the main reason is because we're competing with the black market. I mean, you know, you walk down a Vancouver dispensary, you'll get any variety of products that you want. So if the legal industry is going to be forced to, to, to compete with these people and, and drive them out of business, we're not going to be able to achieve that objective in absence of these, these products. So that's, that, that's one that's key. And, and what the Senate's proposing now is that they want to have control over when new products are legalized and and when we launch launch different forms. It's almost akin to saying, you know, OK, we're going to go to the pharmaceutical industry and we're going to tell them every time you want to launch a new drug, you're going to have to come to the Senate, which is just bizarre uh, because that's not how things work. And, and that's one that uh, we're pushing back quite, quite heavily on, uh, because I think that even though the Liberal government has committed to to launching edibles in 2019, uh, we think that it should be probably done sooner and, and certainly correctly by that date.
1: Interesting. Well, we'll have to touch base with you in a couple of weeks to see how that effort goes and to see what happens in the House over the coming weeks. But for now, Deepak, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Deepak Anand is Vice President of Government Relations at Cannabis Compliance, joining us on the line today from Toronto.
0: Stay with us. We're going to turn our attention next to some of Canada's biggest private M&A activities in recent history.
1: Canadian business law firm Blake's has recently come out with a study of 100 private merger and acquisition deals worked on by the firm between 2014 and 2017. Now, it's not publicly available, nor really are the deals that it features. It exclusively looks at transactions involving Canadian private companies or their assets. We have Blake's Vancouver partner, JP Bogdan, with us to lend insight into some of the findings. Good to have you with us in studio.
3: Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: What kind of insight can you get from a study like this as opposed to a study of, say, more public deals?
3: Sure. So we, we at the firm also do a study of of public M&A trends, and, and uh, much of that data is lifted from agreements that have been made publicly available on, on a securities registration system. You can go on the internet and, and pull them down yourself. The, the difference between those studies and, and, and indeed those studies that focus on private M&A transactions uh, and what we've done here is that we've we've collated closer to 150 deals actually over from uh, 2014 to 2017, and and taken a look at uh, those those deal terms and 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 the information we can pull from them. The deals themselves are going to be quite different. The public study is going to be involving uh, some uh, you know a large. Uh, Typically, a large public corporation that's either carving off a portion of itself uh, or, or buying a private company. And, and the types of dynamics at play in those deals versus where there's a, a private equity uh, player or, or financial sponsor, as it's sometimes called, are going to be dramatically different. And they're going to be looking for dramatically different things. So what we hope to accomplish with our study was to actually get a little more insight into what's market uh, for a, for a private equity deal in Canada. So tell me about the attributes
0: of these deals. Do they differ in terms of uh, how they're effected?
3: Sure. Uh, So the mechanisms to actually to do the deal itself are not going to be that different. In a a private deal, you typically won't have any kind of court process or plan of arrangement, although you can if there are a sufficient number of shareholders. The real difference in a a private equity deal versus just a sort of a, a strategic buying uh, another private private company uh, on a hundred percent basis is that uh, a private equity buyer is looking to exit (laughs) Uh, it's not typically going to be in the business of of long-term ownership and so it's buying with a view to selling later on the other key feature of it is uh, you are looking for a strong management team that's going to run the business for you private equity buyers by and large, uh, don't have operations people that they can staff up these companies with. They're not buying to
0: operate. They're buying
3: for a passive income stream for a while and then,
0: say, an exit strategy?
3: Yeah, I mean, passivity is always on a spectrum. Uh, 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 most private equity buyers will will be keenly interested in the operations of the company and be on the board.
0: So maybe it's an active
3: That's stream. And it's, it's a <laughs> very right. active okay. income no. stream, and they'll, they'll look to uh, professionalize the, bu- uh, the business they're buying. They will look to uh, find... Financial efficiencies that can be worked through. i uh, taking on uh, a better debt package than the, the, the than the target could get itself, uh, and they will also look to uh, build the the business out organically and and including uh, by doing follow on acquisitions and and mm-hmm. what we call tuck ins or add ons.
1: So let's drill down a little bit. I'm curious about deal size and what yep. trends you have to share about that.
3: Sure. So the 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 study. Um, didn't offer a lot of surprises in that respect. I, I, I've um, I've been at the firm since 2004 and, and worked worked in private equity since that time. And um, I've always considered Canada a pretty mid market kind of place. And and what that means for for me and for most in Canada is, is that you know a mid market deal is anywhere between kind of 50 million dollars in terms of enterprise value to to somewhere around 150, um, and in some cases lower. Uh, the the study disclosed that just eight percent of uh, private equity deals that, that we were involved in in those one hundred and fifty uh, were were in excess of a billion dollars, and that we think is pretty typical. Um, it's heartening. I mean, doing a billion dollar deal is always is always newsworthy, uh, but but really the, the the heartland for Canadian private equity is in the mid
0: market. Is there again a, a bit of a regional difference in uh, in first of all the activity level mm-hmm. that you would see? Um, the amount of time perhaps that companies hold firms before exiting? Uh, any, any other uh, qualities about it that might differ out here in DC
3: versus say the rest of the country? Sure. So I'll, I'll answer that question by by making an observation first. The, the When we looked at the actual industries that all the targets were involved in, we saw that that uh, close to twenty four percent of of deals were in the uh, the industrial sector. and there's there's a good reason for that. Um, there are lots of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they throw off a steady stream of cash, which which uh, private equity funds can then use to actually finance the uh, and pay off their their debt obligations. so they'll borrow. You know, go to their friendly neighborhood bank and borrow a bunch of money, along with their equity check, to buy those businesses, and then they use the the uh, the cash that's generated by those businesses to service it and pay it down over time. Yeah. Um, BC has no shortage of those, uh, so it's in out out here. Uh, we see a lot of of light industrials private equity deals the thing that we see in bc increasingly uh, and i've, I've seen anecdotally in my practice over the last couple of years it's just a, a large influx in actual private equity deals in the technology sector oh, okay um, yeah uh, vancouver has obviously had a vibrant technology sector and, and has for a long time including in software and gaming in particular um there are now uh technology focused funds based primarily out of silicon valley as you'd expect that 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 are coming up here and are keenly interested in in what we're doing uh and so that that that's a sector that i think differentiates differentiates us here in bc than uh, from from the rest of the country i mean the other places you'll see that kind of activity in technology are, you know uh toronto and and the waterloo hub Uh, And in, in, in Montreal, the biotech hub is strong too.
1: It might likely vary sector to sector, industry to industry, but who tends to be the biggest buyer of these assets?
3: Uh, It's a, it's a good question. Uh, And, and the answer is probably not going to surprise you. So over, uh, over the course of the the term of our study, 2014 to 2017, uh, we saw 55% of buyers were from the U S and that's not a surprise to, to, to anybody who works in the industry. You'll, you'll, often see if there's any kind of auction process running you will see heavy involvement and heavy interest from um, from us buyers both both you know large corporates and and private equity funds alike
0: is that uh because we offer smashing great deals uh, is it uh, <laughs> is it our currency is it the uh, rapacious nature of the americans
3: what what do you think's behind that uh so so there was a there was a globe article recently um i think it was or the first quarter of 2018 that said that, that the private equity market globally has a trillion dollars in dry powder to spend, mm-hmm. uh, dry powder being the unused cash that they have to, to go and buy companies. Um, which is, uh, It's a big check. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of that is actually in the U S. So there is a lot of money um, and untapped resources that U S private equity has to put to work. Um, and for, for those who don't work in the industry, you you only get paid <laughs> on the money you put to work. Just because yeah. you have a billion dollar fund, you, you're not keeping the lights on uh, unless you actually put the money to work. So there is a, a, a very real incentive to put that money to work and spend it. Uh, the other uh, factors that drive that the American interest in Canadian uh, Canadian companies is the currency risk, the fact that it is actually uh, a system that they completely understand. Um, it's not. Uh, it, it, it's both sort of legally. Intellectually and and uh, sort of morally close to to the U.S. Uh, at least in business. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right.
1: You mentioned uh, this is the first year that you've done such a report that you have done the public side study year over year before. I'm curious, maybe how this year is shaping up and what trends you found in this study and what they point to for the year or years ahead.
3: Sure, um, this study I think was was uh, more confirmatory in nature that that among practitioners, we always kind of had a sense of, of, you know, where the trends were, what industries are being, uh, are, are, active. Um, so, you know, from answering the first question, how does this change or how does this differ from, from what we saw before? I don't think there's a big change. It's just, uh, it's nice to know that we were, we were mostly right, uh, right. in, in what we observed anecdotally and, and among ourselves, um, looking forward and what's happening in 2018, um, it's frothy. I mean, we, we've seen in Vancouver, uh, two, um, uh, two private equity backed, uh, acquisitions happen in the, in the software sector. Uh, our firm was, was part of one of them, um, which is interesting. And those are, those are good size deals and, and well-established technology companies that actually, uh, throw off revenue. So it's not, not early stage stuff we're talking about, but, but established companies that are, that are partnering with private equity and, uh, hopefully looking to grow and, and, uh, certainly keep, keep, Businesses here in Canada. Your survey
0: is, of course, during a, uh, an economic period that was pretty positive, and mm-hmm. all that. Um, instinctively, would you expect that in more difficult times that you see a heightened M and A climate? Is that the kind of thing where people begin to exit because of you know whether they're they're holding too much or they're they're feeling under great
3: stress? So I think uh, it's a great question. Uh, first of all. What's going to happen is uh, when when there is a, a downturn, I think sellers' expectations uh, become a little more tempered. Right now, the if you if you surveyed private equity buyers, you would find um, annoyance is a strong word, but a sense of frustration uh, at 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 you know the number of high quality companies that there are in the market uh, is is limited, and and then the people who own those companies justifiably uh, know. What's going on economically, and realize that they're they're going to get a nice multiple. Yeah. yeah. So in in a downturn, uh, no buyer wants to lock in their losses, so they're not going to simply sell unless there's something seriously amiss with their their general partner uh, fund structure. They're likely going to hold on to the asset and weather it out. And in some instances, that's going to be an opportunity to um, you know renegotiate their debt package with a bank and saying you know times aren't what they were. What can you can you give us some better terms? or be more understanding. Uh, and, and it also, uh, gives a financial buyer an opportunity to, to candidly just buy things more cheaply. Um, whether that's adding on to an existing platform investment or, or making a new platform investment at, at a price that's, that's attractive. I mean, the whole, the whole, uh, nature of the game is to, to buy low and sell
0: high. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when is it, is it as, uh, bold, bold as saying, you know, when times are bad, actually activity goes up.
3: Uh, I think I think when times are bad uh people take a much uh people a buyer a private equity buyer will take a, just a, a, a much harder look at a business and see if it can actually weather the storm but assuming it can yeah I think I think that there's going to be a real interest in in you know buying after a uh, buying low after after such a long period of of uh yeah. You know, large seller expectations. Yeah.
1: yeah. In the first half of the show, we talked about legalization of recreational marijuana. We've mm-hmm. seen a lot of M activity over the last little while, along a the public side too. Yeah. But how is a firm like yours sort of gearing up for legalization and what that may mean for MA and A activity?
3: It, it's a good question. We we at Blake's actually have a have a specialized uh, cannabis group that that largely is is. Um, uh, Capital markets fo- focus, or our securities lawyers are keenly interested and keenly involved in those deals, um, both both uh, on the financing side, IPOs, uh, and and on the consolidation that's taking place at you know a dizzying rate. Yeah. Um, we're excited about the space. Um, our regulatory folks, uh, which is the other sort of half of of the group, are are obviously watching developments in the U.S. Uh, very carefully. That's um, really the, the the impediment to uh to uh, a full-fledged uh, uh, both both cross-border uh interest in in the practice is is from what I understand it's not not necessarily my space uh, is, is the the legalization in both at the state and federal level in the us and that's that's still causing some problems
0: yeah it, might we see though much more consolidation in a sector like this because we already have, have some. Uh, and and you know, I think a lot of investors have said maybe most of the big money has been already made at this point, and that there's going to be a holding pattern here until precisely what you say the the United States uh,
3: shakes loose its uh, apprehension and, of all this. Yeah, and rationalizes things a little bit. It, it's a great question. I. um one would hope for, for from the deals dealmakers' perspective. Uh, it's it's difficult for me to, to comment. Not most of, most of the activity is public in nature, uh, yeah. and and my practice is pretty focused on on private equity. So yeah, yeah.
1: Fair enough. Well, JP, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining us with your insight into the study.
3: Uh thanks for having me. I hope I haven't shown too badly on television.
1: You're all good. That's JP Bogdan, partner at Blake's Vancouver office. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for listening to BIV Today.
0: Subscribe to us. Find past episodes on iTunes and Stitcher and, of course, at BIV.com. We'll be back tomorrow.